0: What works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Did you know that 54% of 18 to 38 year olds want to be influencers? Did you know that kids these days would rather be influencers or YouTubers than firefighters, astronauts or teachers? Okay, Boomer. The troubling trend of all our kids putting themselves on the path to internet stardom as employment has been greatly overblown. That 54% of Gen Zers and millennials who want to be influencers, that's not actually what the poll said. The Morning Consult reported that 54% of respondents would become an influencer if given the opportunity. And given the state of Gen Zers and millennials' financial fortunes, that number is shockingly low. And the surveys that found influencer to be on the top of kids' what-do-I-want-to-be-when-I-grow-up lists, well, honestly... I think that says more about public opinion toward traditional careers like teacher, firefighter, or even astronaut. I mean, who can blame a kid for thinking it's a better idea to become an influencer than it is to go into teaching with tons of debt, low pay, and a regular barrage of vitriol from politicians and pundits thrown in your general direction? Honestly, these kids seem pretty savvy to me. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Today's episode is the second in a two parter on the economics of getting and paying attention. In the previous episode, I broke down the mechanics of attention businesses, how the principle of supply and demand relates to attention, and how advertisers put audiences to work. Today, we'll build on each of those pieces and look more closely at the influencer business model, how today's micromedia creators produce audiences to sell back to themselves, And why mini-monopoly power might be at the root of why some folks charge absolutely outrageous prices for ill-defined products. But first, let's take a step way back. Today's influencers are actually part of a long history of promotional labor. The right to publicity was introduced into the U.S. legal system back in 1953. The right to publicity is a form of intellectual property that protects a person's likeness, name, or other distinctive characteristics from being used for promotional purposes without their consent. Ultimately, the right to publicity is owned by the individual in question. And that means that, say... Asana can't claim I use their product or display a photo of me on their website without my permission. I don't know why they'd want to, but they can't. That would violate my right to publicity. And this is a very, very good thing. But the thing about intellectual property is that as soon as a form of IP is protected by law, it also becomes a commodity that can be bought and sold. So the fact that I own a right to publicity means that I can choose to sign it over or sell it. And that creates the potential for my likeness, name, or other distinctive characteristics that is my identity to be the subject of market manipulation. Now, the next episode is gonna be all about intellectual property, so I'm gonna leave it right there for today. But the thing to keep in mind here is that as early as 1953, we had a legal construct for how celebrity could be bought and sold in service of promoting products. Tonight, we're going visiting at the Ronald Reagan's again in their new home to see how their many wonderful electric servants are helping them, just as they'll help you, live better electrically. Oh, that's hot. Oh, it's not. Oh, but delicious. Everything's just right in the patty. Celebrities, specifically the movie stars of the studio system, were the original beneficiaries of the right to publicity. But only for as long as it took the studios they worked for to add promotional requirements to their contracts. Studios recognized the value of the celebrities they controlled in terms of promotional labor. By incorporating the right of publicity into a celebrity's contract, they could dictate the nature of that labor and prohibit other promotional labor. Celebrity value grew and grew over the course of the 20th century. Celebrity value expanded beyond a mere photo or tagline to encompass a celebrity's full self-presentation and lifestyle, which allowed marketers to leverage the celebrity brand to achieve even greater persuasion. As more products hit the market without a clear reason to buy them, companies relied on celebrity endorsement and other forms of marketing to entice consumers to buy. And since our economic growth now depends on creating new consumer goods and convincing people to buy them, celebrity became a valuable economic condition in and of itself. Again, kids these days, pretty savvy. On that note, let's talk about influencers. Influencers are part of the micromedia company category. Influencers create media, most often images and videos, that then produce audiences. Brands pay for access to those audiences. When a brand pays for a sponsored post, they're not paying for the post itself. In part, they are paying a use fee on the influencer's right to publicity, like you might pay a licensing fee for a song or company trademark. And the other thing the brand is paying for is the audience power that the influencer is a conduit for. Now that the audience power is being traded in the market, we can call it, as Dallas Smythe did, an audience commodity. Each influencer trades in their own audience commodity. The core product is the same, attention, but the value of any particular influencer's audience commodity is a function of its demographics, psychographics, and scale. If an audience is large, but the demographics and psychographics are diverse, the value of the audience commodity is probably gonna be a bit lower if an audience is on the small side, but the demographics and psychographics are narrow and consistent, the value might be significantly higher to the right advertiser. All that means influencers sell audience attention. And this might come as news to many people. It might even come as news to many influencers. But it's true On the surface, it looks like an advertiser is hiring an influencer or paying for an endorsement. But what the advertiser knows they're buying is direct access to an audience. A savvy influencer doesn't curate their feed to mold themselves into the perfect brand spokesperson. They curate their feed to capture a particular audience they can sell to a brand. You might ask, as many others have, why a brand would care about reaching an influencer's audience at all when they've successfully relied on the audiences of mass media for generations. One reason is that audiences are more fractured today than they were even 20 years ago. While more people are consuming media today, the monocultural audience has gone the way of the dodo bird. More people consume media in more ways, streaming services, cable, podcasts, news sites, social media, YouTube, the list goes on and on. So it's become harder to purchase the same kind of audiences available when CNN was the only 24-hour news network, or when a significant segment of the population tuned into must-see TV on NBC. The other reason advertisers are willing to pay for access to an influencer's audience is the attention scarcity we discussed in the last episode. While traditional advertising has become a less reliable means of purchasing audience power, influencer marketing promises a more reliable opportunity. The ad is often disguised, either explicitly or implicitly. And the relationship that a follower has with an account gives the ad a sense of credibility that traditional celebrity advertising just can't match. Remember those annoying headlines about kids these days wanting to be influencers when they grew up? Now sure, rapid demographic change is scary, but I think what really bothers some people about these headlines is something more nefarious. While we're familiar with the ways that teachers, firefighters, and even rock stars labor, influencer labor is largely hidden. If you haven't been a content creator as your primary job, it's almost impossible to imagine the amount of work that goes into it. Now, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of verbal scare quotes. Ready? So when kids want to be influencers when they grow up, many people read that as kids not wanting to work for a living. And that is a generational panic that is repeated with every generation. We might joke that professional influencers don't work, they just get paid to be themselves a little more publicly than the rest of us. But this misses a key component of the labor of celebrity and micromedia creation. Media scholars Allison Hearn and Stephanie Schoenhoff dub this style of work promotional post-Fordism. Instead of producing material goods in a factory setting, our economy is increasingly based on the production of immaterial commodities like marketing and branding. This requires immaterial labor, which includes creativity, innovation, and the manipulation of personal emotion, personality, and affect. We might think of the work site then as a social factory. Hearn and Schoenhoff write, work is dispersed into all areas of life and human sociality becomes the site for the creation of new forms of productive activity. Hearn and Schoenhoff argue this makes self-presentation and self-branding critical workforce skills. Displaying a skill or ideology becomes more valuable than actually having that skill or holding that ideology. In fact, popularity becomes a proxy indicator of ability or talent. Of course, you don't have to be an influencer to be doing this kind of work, often while producing other forms of value. Most of us today are encouraged and in fact labor pretty hard at self-presentation and self-branding as workforce skills. Just as in a traditional factory, the social factory requires production efficiency to generate profit. When it comes to influencers or anyone building an audience online, efficiency happens in the way media is created, for sure. But efficiency is also leveraged in decisions about what media to create in the first place. Now, an inefficient way to build an audience might be, say, writing eight or 9,000 words on the economics of attention or producing detailed carousel posts for Instagram on topics like cash flow or the changing nature of work. It takes a lot of time and energy, and it only appeals to a tiny fraction of people who are interested in the future of work. Not that I know anything about inefficient audience building. Anyhow, a much more efficient way to build an audience is to notice what kind of posts garner the most gains in terms of audience and attention, and then produce that type of content over and over again. Doesn't matter if your taste or interest change, you just keep making the stuff that brings in new followers. If the audience starts to disengage, well, then you better figure out what they want now and get back on that hamster wheel of production. Now, in the previous episode, I mentioned the YouTube show, Good Mythical Morning. Good Mythical Morning. Rhett and Link and the Mythical crew have been making the show for over 10 years, five days a week. In the beginning, the show was mostly just the two of them joking with each other. And they built a loyal following based on that format. But just a couple of years in, they discovered that filming themselves eating gross things really racked up the views. And today, I'd guesstimate that about 40% of GMM episodes feature them eating Something. Food preferences go way deeper than things like, do you put ketchup on a hot dog? Or should pineapple go on a pizza? The world is filled with strong opinions about different ways you prefer to eat the exact same food. Like, uh, which piece of a brownie do I want from the pan and exactly how hard am I willing to fight a child for it? Further capitalizing on this, Mythical also runs a spinoff channel called The Mythical Kitchen. And last year, they even launched a sister website based on the popularity of their food content. It's called Sporked, and it's sort of like a wire cutter for brand name snacks. And folks, here's the thing. Sean and I love this show. When they take time off a few times per year, our evenings are thrown into chaos. Is it the most highbrow type of culture I consume? Hell no. But It's smart, even in its stupidity. They're happy to gag their way through eating beef bile cheesecake, but they're also transparently savvy about how they run their company and what kind of media they decide to create. Good Mythical Morning is pretty much the most mature and sophisticated juvenile prank media on the internet. And with 18 million subscribers, I think other folks agree. So where was I? The most efficient way to produce more audience power is to ensure that the media published or broadcast attracts as many people as possible. These media are homogenized and engineered for the lowest common cultural denominator. In an aside in his essay on the audience commodity, Dallas Smythe remarks about a Hollywood publicity agent with a sign over his desk that read, you never lose money by underestimating the level of popular taste. In the new media model, platforms amplify media that get the most people engaged, or rather puts the most people to work. As we're all too familiar with now, these media often induce rage and disgust rather than thoughtful discourse. These media produce smaller and more niche audiences, but produce those audiences at scale. While both the new and the old media models will continue to woo advertisers, influencers offer something different. Influencers produce highly niche audiences with a veneer of intimacy and personability that neither the old nor the new media model can match. Influencer advertising promises a unique form of audience power, one that is just itching to get to work on behalf of both the advertiser and the influencer. In a market where attention and its corresponding audience power are scarce, influencer advertising offers companies a compelling alternative. A couple of years ago, before I discovered my interest in media theory, I wrote a popular article about the difference between audience building and finding clients. I argued that many small business owners and independent workers try to build audiences on social media rather than taking actions that would actually help them connect with clients. While it's absolutely possible to use social media to find clients, there are all sorts of other ways to do it too. And building an audience on social media looks different than finding clients on social media. And that's because if you're building an audience on social media, as influencers do, the primary product you're producing is that audience. What you sell is secondary. It has to be because no one wants to follow an account that constantly talks about what it has for sale. All that free content you create, the comments you respond to, the shares your work inspires, ultimately that produces an audience in the same way an influencer does. In fact, for the audience building attention business, what they sell isn't just secondary to producing an audience, it's a shadow of it. Let me say that more clearly. The attention business creates free media to produce an audience. That audience reflects value back on that business and its media. The commodity being sold, while it may have some value on its own, primarily gets its value from the audience's interest rather than a particular value proposition. And without the audience casting light on the business and its media, the product for sale probably wouldn't exist at all. If you've ever tried to explain the online course you just bought or the workshop you just attended to a friend who isn't immersed in the same audience you are, you know what I mean. They probably don't get it. They can't imagine spending money on it, let alone hundreds or thousands of dollars. What you bought was valuable to you because your attention on the person selling the thing made it valuable. But here's where today's media model gets interesting and where we'll finally circle back to our case study from the previous episode. While plenty of influencers and media creators do sell the audience power they've produced to a third party, There is a significant segment of creators on social media platforms, email platforms, and YouTube who realize they'll get a better deal, essentially selling that audience back to themselves. Instead of letting another brand use that audience power, the creator uses the audience power by spinning up an online course, offering merch, or starting a Patreon. These creators put the audience to work for them. They create the media that suggests a problem or need that the audience might have. They raise awareness of the category of products that the audience might use to solve that problem, and they educate the audience on the differences between their product and alternatives. The audience engages, i.e. labors, by watching, liking, commenting, subscribing, following, and sharing, and eventually pays the creator back by buying. Now, if you're picking up what I'm putting down here, you are probably thinking, um, duh, Tara, that's how social media and content marketing works. Duh. And yeah, you are totally right. The question for me then is, what does that teach us about why an influencer believes they can charge $100,000 for coaching? And then... What does that teach you about why your own marketing efforts may or may not be working? What does it teach us about the products we sell and the products we buy? In the previous episode, I introduced the attention business, and I looked at one Instagram account as a potential example of an extreme instantiation of this model. Steph the owner of this Instagram account, offers a $100,000 12-month coaching package on her website. Seeing this, we might ask, what could possibly make a coaching package worth that kind of money? It's a valid question. And sure, I can rationalize it for you. We might consider the clientele she's working with or a track record of success in situations where a lot of money is on the line. And I am certainly not going to say that there is no coach or consultant whose services are worth $100,000 per year. But no rationalization like this appears on Steph's website. Nary even a sales page can be found. But no rationalization is needed because the value of this offer isn't actually in play. The value is beside the point. Offering a package like this is a bet. It's a bet that having amassed 20,000, 50,000, or 100,000 followers, a few people in the audience have the power to pay that amount. It's a bet that the ideology on offer is strong enough to activate those people. It's a bet that the audience power shining on an influencer's or creator's account is enough to produce that shadow of value. As both the producer and consumer of the audience commodity, the influencer or creator gambles that the audience power they now have access to has the capacity to fork over the money. Now, to be clear, I have no idea if Steph has ever signed a $100,000 coaching client. I don't know if her business is in any way successful. It doesn't matter because there are people who operate models like this and do make boatloads of money. You can find them discussed and complained about in multiple subreddits. But I don't wanna give you the impression that all attention businesses are run by grifters or people with nothing of value to offer. For instance, Consider how Homebox Office, that is HBO, went a different direction with their business model. By utilizing a monthly fee, they could generate revenue through the audience itself rather than advertisers. The result was not only that we got to watch The Sopranos or Game of Thrones ad free, but it was also that we got to see The Sopranos or Game of Thrones at all those shows would likely have never been given a chance in an ad-supported media business model. They were too expensive and too niche an audience. Or consider public broadcasting. NPR and PBS produce audiences and use them to fund their programming directly. Or consider the thinkers who have built audiences on social media first, and then received significant book deals, which spread their ideas beyond even their own audiences. People like Trisha Hersey of the Knapp Ministry, or the author of Unmasking Autism, Dr. Devin Price, or Jessamine Stanley, author of Everybody Yoga. And yeah, I too run a sort of attention business with my podcast and newsletter. And you are part of the audience I produce. And producing this audience helped me find a publisher for my book and participants for my workshops. So, what makes an attention business that offers $100,000 coaching without a clear value proposition or sales page different from a business like HBO or mine? To me, the difference is in whether or not the attention business abuses the vertical integration they've created. What's vertical integration? Imagine that your favorite corn chip manufacturer also owned the number one diarrhea medication. That'd be great because then they could put a little sample of the medicine in each bag. Keep thinking. Except then they might be tempted to make the corn chips give you vertical integration. Okay, so that example is more like horizontal integration than vertical integration, but it cracks me up every time. Anyhow, vertical integration is when a company owns more than one stage of its production process. An example is Andrew Carnegie. He did this with Carnegie Steel. The company owned the iron mines where raw materials were produced, as well as the foundries where iron was turned into steel. Instead of having to purchase raw materials at a markup from a mining company, Carnegie could enjoy the lower costs and higher profit margins of owning the whole process. Netflix is another example of vertical integration. The early iterations of Netflix, both the DVD business and the streaming business, paid licensing fees to content producers so they could distribute content to subscribers. Later, Netflix became a content producer itself, which allowed it to lower its licensing expenses and to deal with content producers withdrawing their content as they also vertically integrated by creating their own streaming services. An attention business is vertically integrated in that it both produces the audience and produces the product the audience will purchase. Media are the raw materials that get turned into audiences, which are then utilized as audience power by the attention business to cash out. Now, vertical integration, in theory, introduces efficiency, cost savings, and economies of scale into the operations of a company. While it can be expensive to get going because a company might have to, say, build a factory or buy another company, it can reduce expenses over time. But what about consumers? How does vertical integration impact consumers? The answer, of course, is it depends. The effects of vertical integration on consumers depend on the incentives at play and the strategy or values of the company one looks at. For instance, HBO has used a degree of vertical integration to make riskier bets on content, which benefits the consumer by bringing them different options from cable TV networks. In turn, this had a positive impact on consumers' television choices as a whole because HBO influenced what consumers demanded from other networks. But vertical integration can also be abused. In an attention business that produces its own audience and then utilizes that audience for profit by direct-to-consumer sales, The attention business can put the audience to work worrying about any number of invented problems or desires. The more invented the problem or desire is, the less likely there is to be competition to solve it. Now, that business is the only one offering a solution, so they can set the price for the solution at whatever will bring in the target volume of sales. This, in effect, turns the vertical integration strategy into a monopoly strategy. A personal brand can potentially insinuate that the problem or desire their audience members have is, well, not being the person behind the personal brand. And if what the personal brand is selling is access to that person, there is no competition. The supply is vanishingly scarce since there is only one of that person and only 24 hours in their day. And the demand might be extremely high because of the scale of the audience they've produced. And hence, it starts to make economic sense that one could charge $100,000 for a year of coaching. Attention is truly a resource in scarce supply and high demand. Attention is arguably one of the biggest sources of capital accumulation today. Just ask Zuckerberg or Musk. Some businesses choose to ignore the sustainability of that resource, and others choose to steward it. If you, like me, are running an attention business, you can be a steward of your audience's attention. And if you're a consumer of attention products, and we all are, you can choose to pay your attention to those who are doing their best to be good stewards. I find a simple framework for thinking about both in Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. She suggests that anyone with a margin of attention to spare cultivate, quote, the ability to not just withdraw attention, but to invest it somewhere else, to enlarge and proliferate it, to improve its acuity. I choose to create media the way I do because I want to steward your attention in exactly that way. I want to help you invest your attention in new ideas and perspectives. I aim to structure the media I create in a way that helps you focus and direct your attention. I withdraw my own creative and intellectual attention from sound bites, quote grams, and Twitter threads in order to create a small attention refuge for you to inhabit. I am not gonna be offering any $100,000 coaching, but I can offer you my attention to this cause. Next week, we'll examine intellectual property. What is it? Why is it an important part of our economy what's working with IP and what's not. And I'll share a case study with author and podcaster, Jenny Blake. She'll share how she uses licensing to run a very lean, very successful small business. Again, I am truly grateful for your attention. Thanks for being willing to go there with me. Remember, each new episode is released in essay form on Thursdays. You can find them at explorewhatworks.com or get them automatically delivered to you every week by subscribing to What Works Weekly absolutely free. Go to com slash weekly to sign up. That's com slash weekly. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a boutique production agency for podcasters who are changing our assumptions about culture, leadership, and business. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. What works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation.